Welcome back to the Expanded Minds podcast. Today, I have a special guest with me, and his name is Lee Hasdell from the Inner Guardians. Now, Lee would consider himself a syncretist, a polymath, and an occultist. Now, just to name a few things Lee specializes in, Lee is a martial artist with various black belts and has teaching qualifications earned in Russia, USA, and Japan. He also is an insured and accredited teacher slash practitioner in NLP, meditation, psychic development, fitness, and mindfulness. And he also runs a successful personal protection company, as well as teaches non-physical personal protection. And so the principles you will learn from Lee in this episode will help you expand your mind and see the world in a new way. So that being said, welcome on. Salutations, everybody, and uh, thank you, Ezekiel, for uh, giving this, giving me this opportunity to be on your podcast. Thank you. Well, yeah, I love your information. The stuff on your your channel is very interesting, and so I'm excited to dive into some of the topics. And today's topic is actually going to be on Gurdjieff and the Fourth Way. And so, where I want to start with all this is, uh, you had an experience when you were eight years old. I would say an initiation, yep. if you will. That happened out of body, um, and you were studying astral projection. <laughs> you, it looks like you were snooping around in your mom's library and found a book on astral projection, and um, yeah. you know how did initiation take place? Can you so can you walk me through what happened during that initiation, and is there a correlation between that initiation and uh, you finding Gurdjieff's work and stuff like that? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, my mother, she was a yoga practitioner. Uh, in the 60s so it was when yoga was kind of new to the west and she used to practice uh, yoga and obviously I, I grew up with yoga being around me um, it, was, it was quite funny when me and my friends used to come home from school we'd have to sort of step over my mum as she was doing her various uh, asanas and I'd have to kind of explain to my friends oh she's doing this yoga thing and anyway um, so I was always used to the sort of unorthodox or um, kind of more abstract spirituality uh, as a child growing up and my mother she used to have a kind of rare collection of books and obviously when I was young I was too young to read them but there was one book in particular and it was a book on astral projection and uh, I started reading it and it made a lot of sense to me uh, and it didn't seem abstract at all now I think uh, looking back now uh, when when you're young your mind is is more open and um, it's it's you could almost say it's, your mind is more spiritual. It's not It's not crystallized or cemented into materialism in the same way as you get older. So I started reading this book and I had some exercises in it and I used to practice them, but I, d I didn't tell my mother. She didn't know anything about it. And so at nighttime, I would uh, practice these exercises. And after about a week, I had this uh, very, mm, yeah, very abstract experience where uh, I left my body and I went into this kind of... Um, altered state where I had my senses were combined uh, some people call it synesthesia um, so I, I could uh, see sound and hear color essentially now the other thing that that was I guess you could say was strange at, at the time was that everything was more or less uh, in terms of geometric shapes even myself I wasn't like uh, who I would see myself in the mirror uh, I was more of a like a, an atmosphere uh, or like an orb type atmosphere and what I experienced was a type of um, well my perceptions were able to experience a type of immortality uh, that's that's the only way I can describe it now it's almost impossible to articulate it or even to have some kind of conceptual framework to to explain the experience it was more it was more sensation so anyway when I came came back in, into the body uh, you could say um, I had a very profound type of uh, terror, almost like a terror of the situation, uh, uh, the importance of, of life and um, the potential and the possibilities of what we have, uh, as opposed to what was being shown to me in terms of uh, traditional education and the sort of uh, mundane material world. Uh, I suddenly realized that there's a whole kind of inner cosmos or, or, or outer cosmos that was available to to humans or, or at least myself uh, and that kind of led me on a path um, where I started to get more into um, uh, even contemporary religion spirituality the occult esoteric 
uh, knowledge. Um, and of course, being, being eight years old, um, it was very hard for me to tell anybody or talk to anybody. I couldn't talk to even my parents. I didn't say anything to them and um, school teachers and even my friends. I kept it to myself. So in a way, I kind of got used to this, the notion of being esoteric or or not not secretive, but but understanding that there's a kind of inner world and an outer world and the, the two are not always compatible. So right from the get-go, I, I fully understood that there's, there's two worlds, the inner and the outer. Does that, does that affect, because a lot of people talk about, especially when they start having awakenings after school, after they go to like primary school and things like that, they're like, oh, school is like programming, things like that. Like, are you able to see as you're going to school, like the different types of programming that exist in it? Are you like able to see maybe the indoctrination that comes from maybe some of ideas from people that are close to you? Like, is that, did having yeah. those kind of experiences help you see through things? Yeah, to be honest, it, it kind of, it, it made it very difficult for me to receive the indoctrination when I, went, when I went to school. And I saw a lot of the contradictions because in one day I would be taught um, that this creation, well, we, we came from an explosion, an accidental explosion for no reason, for no apparent reason, and that we're just spinning infinitely on a spinning ball for no apparent reason and that there is no meaning and purpose for life and then in the afternoon um i would be taught that there was creation there was a creator that there's a, a god and there's a evolution uh we we are we we are uh, progressing we're evolving and then later on in the day i would be taught um entropy and um thermodynamics and uh that there is no perpetual motion so there's in one day there's so many contradictions and whenever i tried to um to challenge any of these i was basically kicked out or sent home <laughs> <laughs> um so what is where does gurdjieff come in all this like does gurdjieff and the fourth way does that help you gain clarity on a lot of maybe such a lot of um you could say of the waking sleep that's going on it, it, does gurdjieff help you clear up on like what, at what point did you meet Gurdjieff and then what did it clear up for you? Okay, so yeah, so I, I went down, you could say a lot of rabbit holes in terms of spiritual stuff. Um, I also studied contemporary religion. Uh, I, was, I was brought up a Christian. Um, I, I got really into Christianity. Um, I read the Bible, but once again, I, I couldn't really decipher that young whether I should read the Bible literally or as some kind of uh, coded message. So I was always, there's always confliction when I, when I spoke to anybody about certain questions, they kind of dismissed me. Um, they couldn't give me the answer. So then I went more into, you could say, Eastern mysticism, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism. Um, so I kind of studied a lot of different, different formats and different um, ways, paths, uh, but nothing kind of uh, resonated with me. And it wasn't until I got a, quite a bit older and for the, for the listeners that don't possibly know much about Gurdjieff and the fourth way, uh, the fourth way is often described as, as a way that once you've exhausted all of the other ways, uh, so the way of the mind, the way of the emotions and the way of the body um, in all the different traditions, um, whether it's yogic, um, uh, Abrahamic um, or um, some kind of Hinduism or some type of mysticism once you've exhausted that and kind of got you haven't got the results then there's the fourth way and the fourth way is quite particular because it's it's you could say it's a synergy between the east and the west and there are certain conditions that make the fourth way possible especially for the western mind you could say and um Gurdjieff he brought the fourth way out you could say um into the west for a particular group or type of person that can't find any other way for some type of personal development or evolution. Okay. And what's, what's the idea of waking sleep? Can you explain like, what does Gurdjieff mean by that concept right there? Yeah. Well, the thing is with, um, with the path of Gurdjieff, um, it, it's almost, it's very practical and it's about results. And, and in many ways, it's about returning to the body. Uh, the body is what 
can hold the sensations and it's the sensations that we need in order to develop uh, or to evolve into a higher being bodies so um, a lot of people talk about being awake and being asleep well in Gurdjieff terms we're all trying to wake up um, it's very hard to establish a permanent state of, of awakening so it's more about peaks and troughs and and, and um, being more asleep or more awake so you can categorize it as as being asleep um, as in at night time or, or whenever you go to bed and then you've got waking sleep so it's kind of like a relative uh, uh, state of being awake and then you've got the true awakening now um, the next question will be is it a permanent state when you awaken or is it does it fluctuate do is it like a spectrum and um, uh, the Gurdjieff path would be more inclined to say it's more of a spectrum so you go through phases of being more awake and more asleep but the middle path would be um, awaking, waking sleep. And a simple example of that, if 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 it's confusing, is, and I'm sure everybody's done this, when you walk to work or you drive to work or somewhere, when you when you get to your destination, you might actually say, actually, I don't remember how I got it here. It happened automatically. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. You you're you're awake because you're going to work. You're going to your destination. So you are awake, you're not asleep. But were you fully awake? Were you fully conscious in that period of time? And so that would be the description of, of waking sleep. Also, if I ask the question, what shoe did you put on first today? Which shoe or shoes do you put on first every day? Most people don't know, but you put your shoes on all the time. So maybe we put our, our shoes on, or a shoe, the left or the right, first or second, and we're not we're not aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's levels yeah. levels of being awake or asleep. Yeah, I think I put on my left shoe today, but uh, um, yeah. okay. So so, 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 so that, talks of so, so, sorry. So, so that that would actually make a very good exercise. Um, so in in the fourth way, we have what's known as the work. So the work is uh, um, spiritual work and, and, and developmental work, uh, but we use practical techniques. There's nothing really um, too abstract or sort of uber spiritual. It's all practical stuff. And that was one of the main attractions um, for me to the work was because it's very, it's very practical. So a simple exercise, which is highly spiritual, would be uh, for three days or a week or three weeks, to be conscious when you're putting your shoes on and try to remember yourself and try to remember which shoe you put on first or second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, and, so there's this concept of self-observation and yeah. there's also this notion within Gurdjieff's work that man th tends to think like he's whole, that he's this whole individual. Mm. And, but in reality, he's split into these many eyes or many, I think the words pers personas or personalities where like yeah. one day he's like this happy or like this one moment he's this happy person the next moment he's a sad person and there's mm. such amount of division within the person and yet the person still thinks uh, the, the notion to, for that person to think that they're awake is kind of delusional because it's like yeah. they don't they're not single they're not whole they're split mm. into the, these many eyes so can you talk to me about like self-observation and how does self-observation bring wholeness and healing to somebody um, on the spiritual path? Yeah, I mean, these are very deep and profound subjects. Um, I, I can unpack them. Um, I think we need to kind of uh, almost simplify it. Where, Well, first of all, let's say, uh, Gershav said, uh, um, I'm not sure if it was his original quote, but he said, man is a legion. Um, so we have lots of different eyes. We have um, different aspects of our personalities and uh, the personality is, is a result of a kind of coping mechanism. So when we're in different situations and, and just, just to squeeze in here that um, the personality is always kind of um, vilified as though it's a bad thing uh, and the ego. Um, when in actual fact, the personality and the ego is just, it's almost like a buffer zone between your inner essence and the external world. So uh, as a child, when a child gets to around about the age three, um, they start to form their ego and personality. And the reason for that is because 
they, the essence finds a lot of contradictions in the external world. And the only way that the essence can kind of cope with having to do um, the duties that are, that are demanded upon it from the external world is to develop a personality which acts as like a buffer zone, almost like um, um, a way of compromise from, from the inner world to the outer world. Um, so I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll get that out of the way. Um, so then when the child grows up, um, the personality gets stronger and stronger, bigger and bigger. Um, the ego gets bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger um, till it almost acts like uh, armor. Um, and then it, it, it blocks out any possibility for, for the essence. Uh, and that's very important to understand. Ultimately, in the end, we're trying to actually develop the true ego. Yeah. In the end, that's, that would be one of the end results with that, the true ego which is um, um, part and parcel of making the or developing the higher being body. Now, um, we'll go back to the to, the, to all these different eyes. So as a, as a working example, at nighttime, before you go to sleep, you might say, tomorrow, I'm going to stop eating or let's say, um, yeah, I'm going to stop eating ice cream for whatever reason. Yeah. So tomorrow, I'll, I won't eat any more ice cream. And then when you wake up, there's another person that says oh i really want ice cream and that would be a very uh, simple example of self-observation and, and and you're able to see that you're not the same person whoever it was that had the idea not to eat ice cream is not the same person that is operating the the machine now uh and you see and you see this these contradictions throughout the day uh, throughout one's lifetime even and you could say that these eyes are kind of circulating or moving around. And largely they're kind of eyes that are influenced by external forces or external conditions. So when we make this assumption that we know who we are and that I am this person and I am, or that I am that person, in actual fact, we're kind of a collective of many different eyes that are not even influenced um, by ourselves. We're not, the, we're not the cause, we're more of the effect of external or abnormal external conditions that will impact on us. And Joseph, he, he had a very good analogy. Um, I won't have time to, to break it down completely, but it's a uh, horse and carriage. I don't know if you've, you've seen this horse and carriage. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for those who haven't um, heard this, I'll just do a very quick rundown. So Joseph described uh, a, a typical uh, ordinary human as, as a horse uh, carriage and a driver. So the driver would represent the intellect or the mind. Uh, the horse would represent the emotions and the carriage would represent the body. Um, now, so the average uh, ordinary human travels around like a, a hackney carriage uh, taxi. Yeah. You, you know, you know. Hackney yeah. Taxi, yeah. So the, the, <clears throat> the driver just goes around picking up random people. That would that would sit in the carriage and act as the master and then they would get out and then somebody else would jump in well that would be very uh similar in terms of a correlation between these eyes that appear in the carriage and then they tell the driver where to go and then they jump out and then somebody else jumps in and sends the driver somewhere else so you could say that for the ordinary person life just happens uh, and and the cause of what happens is by external forces and influences Yeah. So that would be the external world, right? Or would you consider that the external world, the people coming in and planning ideas, or is that something more of an internal thing? If that makes sense. It's more of an uh, abnormal external conditions and forces. Yeah. So that, that, that would be uh, anything from uh, media influence. Uh, it could also be from education. It could be from indoctrination. It could be um, on an energetic level. Basically there's, there's many forces out there. Uh, sorry, influences that uh, ultimately will steer the direction of an individual and uh, a group or collective. Uh, and this is why uh, it's very important that we recognize the how we function. We need to know how to operate our inner functions. Now, there's, there's organizations, there's people, uh, you could say even dark occultists, that under, fully understand how the functions of a human works, and they're able to use that knowledge to manipulate other people yeah actually um you talk about inception along your channel too 
and I actually found this video that was quite interesting. Maybe I can get your opinion on this. But this has to do with like a certain technology that's coming out. And sure. um, I'm going to go ahead and pull it up right here. It's like a three minute clip. Just let me know if it's, um, if it goes on too long, I can uh, <laughs> stop it. Let's see. Your dreams are no longer safe. How about this? Um, can we go from the patterns of your brain when you're looking at an image to reconstructing the image? So the way this worked was they put human beings inside an fMRI machine. They had them look at images and figure out what the patterns are, like translate from uh, image to brain patterns. And then, of course, they would hide the image. So this is a image of a giraffe that the computer has never seen. It's only looking at the fMRI data. And this is what the computer thinks the human is seeing. Yeah. Now, to get state of the art, here's where the combinatorial aspects, why you can start to see these are all the same demo. To do this kind of um, imaging, the latest paper, the one that happened even after this, which is already better, uses stable diffusion, uses the thing that you use to make art. Like, what should a thing that you use to make art have anything to do with reading your brain? But of course, it goes further. So in this one, they said, can they understand um, the inner monologue, the things you're saying to yourself in your own mind. Mind you, by the way, when you dream, your dream, like your visual cortex runs in reverse, so your dreams are no longer safe. Um, but we'll try this. So they had people watch a video and just narrate what was going on in the video in their mind. So the woman, she gets hit in the back, she falls over. This is what the computer reconstructed the person thinking. See a girl, looks just like me, get hit in the back, and then she's knocked off. So our thoughts like, are starting to be decoded. Yeah, just think about what this means for authoritarian states, for instance. Or <laughs> I'll pause it right there. But sure. um, kind of get the gist right there. That's from, if you want to look up where this is from, uh, you can search on YouTube, Center for Humane Technology co-founders Tristan Harris and Azo Raskin discuss the AI dilemma. Hmm. Search that, and that's where that's from. But um, what are your thoughts on, have you seen well, stuff like that come out already? Or? Yeah, I, right. So was, when I was older um, in my life, I, I started to attend uh, esoteric groups and uh, fourth-way schools and various other um, uh, different groups. And after a few years, I, I, I stopped going to them. I, I kind of got almost like a, a, an esoteric crisis um, because I saw what was coming in terms of technology and and um or you could say the threat of technology so i kind of thought well all this stuff that i was studying from years gone by it's no longer appropriate because they didn't really have the same levels of technology that we have to contend with so i decided to walk away from all of the esoteric stuff and, and focus more on uh futurism and uh, technology then after it was about a couple of years i suddenly realized i had that sort of aha moment that actually all of the stuff from the Silver Age, uh, with the likes of uh, Rudolf Steiner, Gurdjieff, uh, Ospensky, um, they were actually warning us about uh, what was to come. Uh, and um, so the stuff that they brought forwards at their time, which was, you could say, around about, uh, well, you could say 19, from 1905 onwards, they were actually trying to articulate things that, that people didn't know or didn't see around them. Um, and so really they were planting the seeds for a future generation. And when I had this realization, I went right back, picked up all of the books and uh, went started going back to some of the groups. And in, then I started to interpret what was written and what was said in a modern context with technology. And then I suddenly realized, ah, they were trying to warn and plant the seeds for future generations because um, uh, Steiner and uh, Gurdjieff both said that potentially humanity is going to reach a certain point in the near future around about 100 years which would be like literally now that uh, it's make or break for the development and the future of, of humanity as we know it um and it became quite difficult trying to combine uh, futurism with with sort of the silver age 
uh, esoteric knowledge. Um, but the more I pursued, and I felt like, uh, you know, am I going insane? Am I the only person that's realizing the correlation between the two? But then over a period of time, I started to see other people and other groups that were starting to draw correlations between the knowledge and the spiritual science and um, occult and esoteric knowledge from the past. And they're able to interpret it into this modern modern age. So in a nutshell, um, Gurdjieff spoke about humans being like a machine. Yeah. And um, the abnormal external condition world, how it can affect and influence and control the inner functions of a human, which is which is a form of occultism. Um, so what we're now seeing is um, uh, something that's playing being played out that you could date back to say around about 1874, when um, you could say scientism tried to uh, eliminate any kind of spiritual knowledge, spiritual connection or direct connection to the creator or the source. Uh, where, because the material materialist agenda had to be uh, played out. So what does that mean? It means that um, everything has to become crystallized. Everything has to become concentrated and the importance and the focus has to be on matter or uh, the material world. And um, with a disregard for the non-physical world or the spiritual world, and and Steiner he called he called um, his way spiritual science, which I think is is quite is quite good because it is about the interaction of the two worlds, uh, the non-physical and the, the physical. Now, a lot of people get confused with Gurdjieff and Steiner because um, they 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 interpret what they said as that this this age of materialism is a major threat it's a it's the enemy when really what they were trying to articulate is that actually um these materialistic or denying forces that have been inserted into this realm are actually the catalyst for our evolution so it's not a case of saying oh this is bad or this is scary oh you know bad things are happening no you have to take it <clears throat> so you don't see it as a problem <clears throat> excuse me but you see it as a challenge so i i try my best not to use the word problem i i use the word challenge and in that way i'm able to use anything that is denying or materialistic as a way or form of um uh, as a catalyst or friction in order to gain traction and once you start, once you start to understand this, once you start to see this playing out in your own life, it's very transformative. It's almost like the the key, because without that, you're gonna potentially, if, if you're going through an awakening process, you you may end up in some kind of depression or fear, or in a worse position than if you just remain purely asleep. And um, this is a very important aspect to understand. Uh, and you can use basic physics, like driving a car. So, for instance, in order for a car to move, it has tires. And the tires are designed for what? Movement. For grip. Well, they grip, they grip, and then they, they can push you forwards. If they were designed to be uh, to slide, then you wouldn't be able to gain traction. So there has to be a, an affirming force and a, and a denying force. You can't have the affirming force without the denying force. Likewise, you can't be happy without understanding sadness. Now, once you understand the, the, the duality of the positive and the negative, that gives the possibility and the potential for what we would call the third force to be activated, the reconciling force. And that is the true meaning of, of, of uh, 369, uh, is the positive, the negative, and then the reconciling force. So people that study the fourth way, um, they're trying to live their lives with the third force activated. And you could potentially say that that is the main difference between somebody who is asleep or in waking sleep compared to somebody who is awake. Somebody who is awake would be somebody that that has the third force activated. Somebody that is asleep would be somebody that, that is third force blind. So they're living in this uh, good, bad, uh, up, down, uh, red, blue, this kind of uh, always in this polarity 
and and you can see this playing out even within say the truth movements or people that are in the pursuit of the truth they become polarized when in actual fact it's not about the polarity it's about uh, ascending or arising from the polarity into the third force of reconciliation and objective reason <laughs> but sense. how do you how do you get people out of a material consciousness though because it's a very dense it's a very dense place to be in it's a very stuck place to be in and it's a never-ending say dark pit and so like how does someone become awake from such a heavy existence well you could say that a lot of people they awaken uh, not through good times but probably from difficult times um or or um yeah i mean it's very it's very hard to awaken from being in luxury it's very hard to uh, awaken from being desperate and this is where the fourth way fits in because there has to be particular conditions so Gurdjieff did actually say that the fourth way is not suitable for somebody that is desperate equally the fourth way is not suitable for somebody that is living living in complete luxury it's almost like uh the, the middle path because for instance mm -hmm. if, if you're starving to death you're probably not going to have um uh, kind of too many conscious thoughts or too much pondering on on the cosmos you're going to be scavenging for food likewise if you've got unlimited amounts of money you're probably not going to be thinking about abstract things either either you're just going to be seeing whatever else you can buy or uh, the seeking of pleasure and and this is why Gershaw said this the fourth way is not for everybody but the fourth way is for a particular uh, type of person that is, um, has uh, suitable external conditions and that has also become exhausted from various forms of seeking and searching and it hasn't got the results. Yeah, and then how do you are... What's the difference between like self-observation and self-remembering? Because I know that there's like a subtle difference that Gurdjieff pointed out, but I don't know if I'm... Yeah, I mean, the, it, 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 can, it can be a little bit of a spectrum. But so, for instance, you could um, remember yourself. Okay, well, let, let me put it this way. So self-observation is kind of observing the self. Self-remembering could be also considered that you remember yourself whilst engaged in external things. Or I can remember myself whilst I'm speaking to you. Whereas, say, self-observation could be something that is done while you're at home alone or in meditation or in isolation. So one is about remembering yourself, just yourself, and one is remembering yourself whilst engaged with other people or other activities. Where would people start? <laughs> like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, if people want to learn about more Gurdjieff's work, like, where would they start in terms of, like, readings, maybe videos? Like, where would they start in terms of... Well, <clears throat> it's a very good question because like most spiritual paths and traditions, uh, they've been psyopted and hijacked over, over time. And um, what most people consider to be Gurdjieff's work is, is not actually Gurdjieff's work, it's Ospensky's work. And the, there's, there's a few reasons for that. The main reason is that um, Ospensky was a student of Gurdjieff, but Ospensky was already an established writer and he was very sort of academic. And he had access to a lot of media at the time. Whereas Gurdjieff was more, you could say, he, he was more of a hands-on type of person, uh, very practical. Um, and he gave a lot of lectures, he gave a lot of talks. And Ospensky would take notes and um, um, document and then produce books and literature. Now, because Ospensky was very much into, you could say, psychology, he kind of turned Gurdjieff's work into a psychological struggle. And, and this is probably the biggest common mistake when it comes to the approaching Gurdjieff's work. Gurdjieff was actually ultimately about energy, the transformation through our energetic system, um, whether it's our uh, nervous system, uh, our hormonal glands, uh, and things like that. Whereas Ospensky, because he was more of a, a psychological person, he, he translated it all into a psychological struggle. So it was, it was kind of like, uh, you have to struggle to awaken your psychological mind. Um, Gershaw would say that the reason why you can't wake up is because you don't have the energy. You don't have the correct uh, subtle energy to awaken because the conscious mind 
needs a certain type of energy, whereas the sleeping mind needs another type of energy. So Gersif was very much about the transubstantiation of subtle energies. Uh, Aspensky, um, so for instance, if, if you, chances are, if you used to go online now or go to a library or, or bookshop and try and find stuff on Gersif, you would probably get stuff by Ospensky, which would lead you down the psychological routes, um, which I did myself. Um, but what you tend to find is that it becomes a psychological challenge and um, you may find people that have studied under those systems kind of quite stiff and um, almost like they've aged before their time. They have lots of knowledge, um, but they haven't been able to integrate it on an energetic level into the body and into their emotions. So, uh, and just one one very simple practical exercise, because uh, you asked about how would you know how would you introduce somebody. Um, yeah. The way that the way that I was introduced, and the way that I would introduce anybody else, and you could call it a type of initiation. So it's very very simple, uh, which is why I love Gurdjieff's work. So right now, if you sense your feet. So right now, whatever you're doing, stop and sense your feet and and connect your attention to your feet and the bottom of your feet, your soles, um, and then extend that awareness into the ground. Now, that sounds very kind of almost like a spiritual cliche, but when you actually try that, uh, be fully aware of your feet and being aware simultaneously of me speaking at the same time that will start to activate a different, almost like a flow of energy. And it will take you out of the sort of uh, psychological state that um, that would be classed as one center, living your life in one center. Gershaw was all about living your life in all three of the lower centers, which is your intellect, your emotions, and the body, simultaneously. And that would be the definition of wisdom. So uh, if you have knowledge and understanding, you could have that psychologically, you could have that intellectually, you can have it in your head, but it doesn't necessarily translate as wisdom. Gershaw said that true wisdom is when uh, knowledge, or sorry, understanding and knowledge uh, can be um, fed through the whole system on all three centers simultaneously, then it becomes wisdom. And where did uh, Gershaw learn a lot of the stuff from? I know he's <laughs> caught into Orthodox Christianity, there's been different yeah. people that he's learned from. So what do you think? Maybe if you can also point out different ideas that he learned it from, like maybe he learned this idea from the Orthodox, he learned this idea from this person. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole thing, especially of the Silver Age, where this kind of knowledge, uh, this esoteric knowledge and all these mystery schools suddenly appeared from around about um, 1850 onwards, there's uh, always a question mark. Um, but... The, there's almost like different versions of Gurdjieff. There's the kind of um, historical Gurdjieff. There's the um, uh, the mystical Gurdjieff. Um, and there's the kind of uh, almost like um, mm, uh, like the story, the storytelling version of Gurdjieff. Now, obviously, back then, they didn't have the same records and documentation that we would have today. So the places he went to is always a bit of a mystery. But in a nutshell, you could say that he was he was a syncretist. Uh, he was a polymath, uh, definitely. There's no doubt about that. And that he was able to to study different systems and and get what he needed to get. Now, I've got my own personal take on how he was able to get the knowledge later on in his life. Um, <clears throat> he developed a system uh, called the movements, which was like a, a physical, emotional, and a mental, um, you could say almost like a dance. Yeah. And what I think he was able to do, he was able to bring down higher knowledge from higher worlds by using this uh, coded symbolic dance. And from that knowledge that he was able to draw down from higher worlds, uh, he was able to then uh, use that for his material for, for the books that he actually wrote himself rather than other people writing for, for him on his behalf. And he produced a book and it's very controversial. Um, and he, he, he kind of done it that way, even by the title, uh, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. Uh, that came out in uh, 1950. Um, now, if you really want to get the gist of or have a deep understanding of Gershaw's work, then that is the book to read. But it's, uh, I warn everybody now, it's a very complicated book to read. Um, it, he recommends that you read it three times. 
so you read it first time like an ordinary book, and then you read it second time like a, it's a special book, and then you read it third time as if you're reading it out aloud. Now, some people take that literally and read the book out aloud, but he actually says, read it as if you're reading it aloud. And um, if you really want to 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 understand Gershaw's true work, um, especially about this realm, which is chapter 39, uh, the holy planet purgatory, he considered this realm as, as a type of purgatory. And um, um, in his early stuff, he kind of was, he wasn't very, complementary to this realm because he said it's only one it's only one step away from the the furthest uh distance from the creator or the source so we're only only one step away but if you actually read Beelzebub's grandson in chapter 39 he actually says that uh the creator and the source that this is actually a special place and this is a very unique place and it's probably the most important place in terms of the ray of creation so he actually ended up being quite um, complimentary about this realm and the importance that all of us have, or should I say the possibilities and the potential that all of us have to, um, it's not just about self-development or my personal growth and development. Although you could say that on a micro level, what we have to incorporate is that we're actually, uh, and he called it uh, being part dog duty, where we're actually doing the work, um, you could say, not necessarily on behalf, but in conjunction with the creator. So we're made in the creator's image. We have the creative capacity. So when we start to view our lives that it's not actually all about me or even about humans, it's actually that we have a, a, a role to play. We have a job to do. We have work to do for the cosmos and the creator. And when you can get to that level of, of um, um, consciousness uh, or conscious uh, labor, intentional suffering, at that point, um, you will find that you will go into a type of reciprocation as opposed to um, just doing stuff without the results. And um, I'll try and give a very simple um, analogy or a, a way to a conceptual framework for, for what I've just said. So we all have to we all have to do things that we don't want to do. Life is 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 quite tough. Um, it's not easy. We all have to labour in one way or another. But if if we can if we can activate the third force in us, and we can have such a level of uh, objective reason. Um, so for instance, let's say I've got to walk my dog and it's raining. To me, that's that's going to be labour, and I don't really want to do it, and I'll drag my feet doing it. Um, Basically, you're doing labor, but you're not going to get any return or result. You're just losing energy. Whereas if I can activate the third force, and I can see from an objective, uh, reasonable position, I can see the value uh, and the love that I have for my dog and that um, the importance that the dog needs to go out. And I can be grateful uh, that it's raining because it's going to replenish uh, the plants and organic life and you have a completely different energy. So then walking the dog almost becomes miraculous as opposed to being a, a kind of negative chore. Um, uh, did that make sense? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense right there. Yeah. And then, so you can, so you can actually, sorry, you can actually transform your life purely on an energetic level. And when you do that, you go in, you can go into reciprocation as opposed to just being pu purely drained. And, and as Gershev would say, food for the moon. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, actually, what is that food for the moon? Can you go a little bit deeper into that? Like, because <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's kind of hard if people are hearing this for the first time to actually conceptualize yeah. like food for the moon. Because people think the moon is just, I don't, I, don't, I don't think a lot of people understand the moon's actual function. So you can go a little bit deeper on that. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> in terms of the, the fourth way, the moon would be considered the sort of the denying force or the negative aspect or the negative force. Um, but in very simple terms, you could say that the personality, so the, the, um, the energy from the moon that, is, that, that comes down into organic life or the, the coating of this realm, it creates like a type of um, mechanicality. So it's very kind of robotic, which like with all things, there's a positive and there's a negative. 
so what would be the negative well negativity or sorry the negative side of that would be sleep um being like an automaton walking around or living your life in some kind of somnambulistic state of waking sleep so that would that could be seen as a negative now the positive side of it is that actually we do need a certain amount of uh, mechanical uh, function so imagine if uh, if you look at your, your own organism imagine if you had to consciously beat your heart consciously um uh, have liver function consciously activate your your kidneys to do the job if you had to consciously do that moment by moment life would almost be impossible imagine if you forgot to beat your heart and you just so there's a level of automatism that takes place and you could say that that is uh, the moon's influence so the moon is kind of res responsible for um almost the the reliable functioning of this realm so that so that it doesn't become too abstract um now so when it comes to food for the moon um you could say that the food the, the moon has to be fed so we're living in a type of food chain um i, I don't really have time to go into the whole um numbers and and um uh, fractions when it comes into uh, the moon the earth um, other worlds sun and, and all of those things um so if you look at the moon in terms of it's a it's a it's a growing um body and it needs to be fed so as an example you you can actually link things like human sacrifice animal sacrifice to the feeding of the moon in terms of uh, the energy from the blood um i think if you was to actually do an analysis in terms of wars or when there's um disaster you could draw a correlation between the moon the moon feeding on humanity uh, which is largely done through the energy of the blood and um so when when we use the term food for the moon you would generally say that all the actions done in personality on an energetic level on an atmospheric level could be considered food for the moon mm -hmm. and it's also linked to a type of cold coldening of the heart um and this is a very important point that um especially at the stage we're at with with kind of this so-called great awakening um with this whole notion of awakening it's very easy to become cynical and to become cold-hearted almost becoming the complete opposite to what you intended uh, the awakening to be because because you start to see reality as it as it truly is it can it can have quite almost a a, a damaging effect okay um that would be considered almost like a mechanical awakening a true conscious awakening would in the indication of that would be that your heart is getting warmer that it's getting more solar yeah uh, that means that you're almost mm -hmm. on a different, different um, uh, well, you, you, you're no longer really in a food chain, you're in more reciprocation. So you're getting warmth from um, uh, solar bodies. And, um, and and I recommend everybody does a check on themselves. Like, are you getting warmer or are you getting colder? Forget about your religious path, forget about your awakening, forget about your spirituality are you as a person and as you're getting older are you is your heart getting warmer or is it getting colder and i know for myself when i've done it in the past i there's been times when i've realized you know what i'm getting colder because i'm getting cynical although i know the truth and i think i know the truth and i'm awake i'm getting hard uh, uh, colder towards uh life other people um when when you realize that or when you're able to to gauge or measure that then you can um start to get warmer <laughs> awesome and then i have one last question for you <laughs> so like what's the link between your name inner guardian or is there a link between your name inner guardians and gorgeous work uh i would say yes and no um the term inner guardians was something that i came up with because um as you mentioned at the beginning my my, my um personal business is actually in protection and self-defense and uh, all of those uh, types of things. So um, my initial approach was, uh, my original approach to all of this was, how does one protect the essence from this abnormal external world or uh, demonic forces or the devil and, and all of these things? So that was my original approach. And 
I was able to actually translate it very well. I was, I was actually able to, to translate personal protection um, on a non-physical, on a spiritual, in this whole thing about spiritual warfare, um, the armor of God. And all, you know, there's, if you look at every spiritual tradition, there's always either a sword or um, a type of protector. Um, so then when I came up with, with the, the name Inner Guardians, I realized that it's the inner world literally is the final frontier for this kind of uh, terraforming and bioforming that um, those power-possessing people that seem to have taken control of this world, um, their dream come true is that they can control your inner functions. So our external world is pretty much uh, brought, brought and uh, taken. Yeah, the land mass has been taken. It's owned by somebody. You've got all these um, external rules, regulations, uh, control mechanisms, but your your mind and your emotions are still relatively free. You you're free to walk down the street and think whatever you like. It can't be policed. But if you look at the agendas and if you look at the um, the movement towards um, technology and AI and transhumanism, uh, their dream come true is that they're able to usurp or use inception into the mind into the psyche into the emotions and control humans at source so inner guardians uh, as a concept it was it was born out of how to protect one's essence from these external forces <laughs> <laughs> awesome and uh where can people find you and is there anything any last comments Question. uh yeah i i try to simplify everything uh i'm not i'm not too i'm not actually too big into uh social media and being a sort of an esoteric person um and i spent many years in esoteric groups we 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 would sort of hide away we'd be in the shadows uh doing whatever we do um we never used to talk about anything and to be honest i still get a little bit of stick from some esoteric groups and people uh for being so outspoken but when I realized we, we're reaching, reaching a time, uh, almost a critical mass for uh, the survival of humanity, that I think a lot of this knowledge needs to be to be put out. And um, the Inner Guardians is that vehicle for me to put out what I feel um, is needed and what I feel comfortable with putting out. Um, so we've got a website, innerguardians.com. Uh, that's probably the best place to go to. Uh, I run um, bi-weekly uh, dojos. We call them dojos. Because I've kind of fused in the martial arts aspect with the esoteric, so we call them esoteric dojos. And um, what I do with those, <clears throat> they're, they're all online, and people have an opportunity to almost dip their toes into the esoteric world. And I try my best. It's, it's not a platform or anything for preaching. Um, there is elements of teaching, but it's more a way for me to communicate what. Um, other people know the knowledge and wisdom that they know and um, potentially is being used by uh, say uh, um, social science uh, media and um, various different uh, te uh, technology uh, outputs yeah <laughs> awesome and I'll link everything below and uh, sure. once again thank you for coming on and uh, you're welcome Thank you.